merciful and mighty. I got two of the words that stand in such sharp contrast to each other. You are holy and completely other than we are, yet you are near to us. And you're worthy of our praise, you're worthy of our affection, you're worthy of our lives. And God, we pray that this morning, as a result of being together, singing your praises, being underneath your word, through the power of your spirit, that we would leave here affected in the most biblical sense of the word, uh, moved with greater desire to please you in our lives, aware more fully of sin in our lives, where it still has its tentacles attached to our hearts, that we would be able to put it away, that we find our love for you to increase this morning. Thank you for your love for us. It's only because you loved us first that we have any love for you. If you hadn't loved us first, we would refuse you even today. Merciful, mighty, marvelous, wonderful are your works. And for those of us who are in Christ, we know that well. Strengthen us now to be able to hear from your word. Sharpen our hearts and our ears and our minds to be able to hear and to see what we need to see. Thank you for your word that is living and active and stands ready to do a work to present us complete in Christ. Would you do work now through your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Go and have a seat. Well, good morning, everybody. I hope you're doing well. Uh, my name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here. And if you're new here, so grateful you chose to join us this morning. And happy Mother's Day to you. Moms, ladies, thanks for praying uh, for the women in the body. And Let's go to the book of James. We're going to be in chapter 4. If you haven't been with us, we've been marching through the book of James. And uh, there's a lot of different ways you could describe the book of James, but one of the descriptions that comes to mind for me this morning is a little bit like every time we study James or every time I get up to preach, it's like getting back in the boxing ring with someone who's really adept at hitting you right in the mouth. Um, because there's just at every turn, there's just there's real challenges. There's a deep sense of conviction that comes from the book of James uh, as really the overarching theme is, is having faith in action. So that our faith as believers is supposed to work outwardly in various different ways. And I think one of the things, if we're honest, that we, we don't really care for all that much is when we, when we hear what our duty is. Maybe particularly as it relates to being a Christian, like our responsibilities. When we, when we hear words of duty, like do this, don't do this, there's, there's part of us that kind of rises up against those things. And maybe in a way that can surprise us because we know the grace of God, we, we want to kind of push back against things that tell us specifically things to do or not do. But the book of James, maybe unique to the whole Bible, is filled with all sorts of do's and don'ts. And we're going to see a few of those this morning. So constantly, and I think you felt this way, I've heard probably more feedback on the book of James than I have in previous books we preached on. I think it's because God's word is doing its work in the hearts of his people. And so it seems every week you could ask yourself this question or probably confronted with the, the question of, Matt, does your, does your profession line up with your practice? Does your life match that which you say you believe. And that really is at the heart of this book. Our speech, our thoughts, our supposed wisdom, the way we relate to one another in the world are continually placed under the microscope 
of the Spirit's evaluation, and we likely find ourselves in need of realignment every single time we see this book to our Christian duty. I was talking to Kevin Collada a couple weeks ago, and he just real humbly said, hey, would you mind just next time maybe preaching a book that's a little less convicting? It's just a little bit lighter, because it really is that way. But that feeling of duty, the need to do and not do, um, can never overshadow the work that Jesus has already done. And so, just to put it really clearly, if you're in this room and you hear this call to activity and to do certain things, it flows out of a heart that knows they've been delivered by the work of Jesus. So all of our duty really flows out of our deliverance. The work that we do for God, as it were, in our lives is accomplished by and fueled by the work that he's already done for us. And we can't get that twisted. We can't miss that. Our text this morning gives us two specific applications of two themes we've covered in our study of James so far, taming the tongue and then pride versus humility. I woke up this morning prepared to preach verses 11 through 17, and we're only going to get through 11 and 12. Because there's so much just in a a short amount of time that deals with, and and 11 and 12, which gave me comfort as a pastor, because commentators are all over the place. 11 and 12, you look at it, you're like, where does this even fit? Like, where does this, does it go with what's before or after? And people are confused, including me, which I take great comfort in that. So we're just going to preach it, and we're going to surround it in the, the immediate context, which is really what we looked at last week. This call to humble yourselves before God. That God is opposed to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. And let's read in chapter 4, verse 10, and then we'll read verse, through verse 12. Verse 10 says, Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So the main point of James's, James 4, 11 through 17 can kind of be summed up in two questions that James gives. And we hear the first one just a second ago. Who are you to judge your neighbor? Next week we'll see the question, but what is your life? And both sections deal with this kind of arrogant boasting that comes firstly in the package of judging other people. And we're going to have to do some, some work to understand what that is and what that isn't. Because there's a little bit of misconception, well, not a little bit, there's a lot of misconceptions as it relates to judgment. When's it appropriate? To whom is it appropriate? And we're going to spend some time to kind of unpack that. But the main idea for this morning is that pride speaks against other people. Pride speaks against other people. So the first thing we see is do not speak evil against one, on, one another. So there's multiple places where this is translated slander. Romans 1, 30, 1 Peter 3, 16. So Romans 1, verses 28 through 30, says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not, ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful. It's it's interesting to see how closely linked pride 
and slander are scripturally. And so we see in Romans chapter 1, it's kind of like, the, like our resume of darkness before we know Jesus includes the fact that we speak out against, we slander other people as a manner of life and as a posture of heart. That's our, just in case we're not all feeling in the same boat, we are, it's our temptation is to judge, to speak against, to slander other people. In Psalm 50, verses 19 and 20, it says, You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. So one of the things it's important for us to remember is that, that James, so look back at the text, says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. So James surrounds this in familial language, which I think is intentional. Because it really does, in a sense, kind of push you into the most intimate corners of your life with those who are brothers and sisters and mothers. And he goes on to broaden it to neighbors. But the familial language could sound a little bit like this. Like, look, guys, like you're family. You are family. Your brothers and sisters don't slander one another. We looked at last week, and this isn't foreign to this moment. Last week, the question was asked, like, what's the... What's the reason for all the tension among you, the fights and quarrels at work in you, church, family of God? Isn't it that your selfish passions are waging war against you? And the same kind of tone is taken here. Your brothers and sisters, you're speaking evil against your family. And if you are humbled before God, verse 10, it will be demonstrated in your humility before men resulting in what we see in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Encourage one another and build one another up as part of the Christian life, as part of the Christian ethos in the family of God. But he says, don't speak against one another. Here's what I want to do, because I want to make this abundantly practical. As we think about it, again, we're in the framework of pride versus humility, and I want to demonstrate from this text and some other places real quickly what pride does that's tied to this particular section, verses 11 and 12. And the first is this, pride delights in controversy. Pride delights in controversy. Some of you know what TMZ is. TMZ is like the paparazzi extraordinaire. Like they, they make a living chasing people down to get the scoop on everybody who seemingly everybody wants to know about. They made $24 million last year, apparently, doing such. Delivering the scoop on whoever you may want to know about. That's their, that's their role. That's their profession in society is to give you the skinny and to stir up the controversy on other people. And pride loves and delights in controversy. Our hearts and speech can often look more like the tabloids than the truth of Scripture. Oftentimes, subtly, but I think if, we're, if, we, if we take a step back, survey our hearts, and think about the question, do I delight in knowing things that other people don't know? And if so, does it cause me to tell other people things that they don't know that I think they should know? And am I telling them things that I think they want to know that I know about other people? You can see the tie-in. It's a complicated mix of pride and communication. It's no mistake that this is a flow of thought from, hey, be slow to speak, chapter 1. 
Taming the tongue, which is just able to unleash the fires of hell if you don't watch your words. We see wisdom displayed even in our speech, but we're guilty of speaking out because we love controversy. Getting or giving the scoop on someone is often a culturally acceptable form of slander. If I could just say it really clearly just for a moment, you can put Christian clothing on slander. And it might sound something like this, like, hey, pray for Frank. He's just really being a jerk to his family. And it's kind of funny, but you've heard something similar to that probably in Christian circles. Like we can mask through a, a prayer request something that undermines someone's reputation in other people's eyes. But pride loves controversy. Pride loves to be in the know and to have the scoop. And what does James say? He's like, hey, don't speak against one another. Don't do anything to undermine the reputation of other people. First Timothy 6, 4, and 5. The one who doesn't align with sound words of godliness is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy and dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people. So that's the one who doesn't align with sound words of godliness. Here's my rewriting this in the affirmative for the believer. Rewritten, here's what this would sound like. One who aligns with God's word is humble and possesses wisdom from above. He has a healthy hatred for controversy and is cautious with his words, which produces generosity, harmony, encouraging words, freedom to believe the best, and constant unity among people. And this sounds a lot like the contrast between wisdom from above and wisdom from below, if you remember just a couple weeks ago, right? The wisdom from below destroys, separates. The wisdom from above brings a harvest of righteousness and peace to the people of God. But pride loves controversy. Secondly, pride is convinced that accuracy necessitates announcement. Just because something is right doesn't mean that it needs to be said. And you see that here in this section. You might be right about what you're speaking, but it doesn't mean that you need to say it. But pride loves to be swift to speak. But even things that are true at times need to be held quietly in the heart. No matter how you may have been offended or hurt, don't undermine someone else's reputation by spilling the beans to someone else who isn't a part of the solution. Alec Motyer is one of the commentators I've been reading. There's two quotes I'll share from him. The first one says this. It says, defamation is forbidden not as a breach of truth, nor even as a breach of love, but as a breach of humility. If we are really low before God, verses 6 through 10, we have no altitude left from which to talk down to anyone. Do you think that you're high enough to be able to speak down to other people? To be dismissive of even those in the family of faith? And that's what James is talking about. And we're going to circle back to that as we talk about judgment here in just a moment. But pride is convinced that accuracy necessitates announcement. 
Pride believes that inward defamation is acceptable. And this one is really spiky because we can be convinced that as we inwardly libel someone and tell ourselves stories about someone, but it never comes out that somehow that's acceptable. But inward defamation has its own effect on the heart of those who practice it. Again, Alec Motyer says this, says, defamation begins and lives on in the mind. It is something we say to ourselves long before we pass it on. But if our minds were drilled in biblical attitudes, then love for our brothers and sisters would begin to root out condemnation. Consideration for our neighbors would begin to replace the hurtful and arrogant word. <clears throat> so here's what, here's what I'm saying by this. Like inward defamation of someone. The silent reproach and accusation of others smells, looks, and sounds just like the wisdom from below. If you are given to sitting around quietly, telling yourselves negative stories about people, even people in the church, this inward defamation and libel, libel and slander has an effect on your heart. The point he makes is that ultimately it exists in your heart well before it comes out through your lips. And it doesn't reflect the gentle and peaceable, mercy-giving wisdom from above. So as we continue on, James likens speaking against others to speaking against the law. This is an interesting section, but I want to try to make it simple because I don't want to get lost in the twists and turns. There's one way in which speaking against, libeling, slandering your neighbor is a violation of the law in the sense that it violates the law of love. Like our, our highest moral good is to love one another. Jesus summed up the law in two commandments of love. Love God and love other people, right? The greatest commandment is love God. The second one is like it, love other people. So we violate we speak against the law when we speak against other people in this particular way, slandering other people because it violates that law of love. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There's only one lawgiver and judge. He is able to, he is able to save and to Destroy. So the second negative command we get in this text is nestled right up against that. Don't speak against others, and it's don't judge others. Okay, so here's where we need to pause for a minute and do a little bit of work. Y'all ready for this? So culture can sometimes quote the Bible. You hear it. And this is one of the passages that people love to quote. Hey, don't judge me. Don't judge me. God is my judge. You might hear like God is love. That's another popular one disconnected from what that actually is talking about. So it's important for us to realize what this is saying and what it's not saying. Matthew chapter 7, arguably quoted more than any other verse from culture, judge not that you be not judged. It's interesting how verse 2 is usually cut off. It says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use it, it will be measured to you. We are guilty of violating our own standards. And so Jesus is saying, hey, be careful when you judge the same standard that you uphold for someone else you are going to be judged by. 
More times than not, this verse is quoted as a smokescreen to enjoy sin. Don't judge me, often issues from a heart that values personal autonomy over holiness. After all, what about love and tolerance, right? Tolerance has become one of our greatest cultural virtues. What is meant by that ultimately is that you can't tell me what to do. You can't tell me what's right and wrong. It's up for me to determine. But what we have to reckon with in the Bible is that the truth never tolerates lies. The truth is always exclusive. It always excludes that which is false. So in that sense, judgment is necessary and right when we look at God's word. God's word will always be the standard by which our lives, actions, words, and motives will be evaluated. So, so James doesn't have in mind this notion of, hey, don't judge me, the don't judge me person just trying to enjoy their sin. He's concerned about the arrogant believer who positions himself as the judge of his brother. That's his primary zoomed-in audience. The issue is one of pride within the heart of a believer who thinks that they stand over another professing believer, and even possibly a neighbor. But there is a biblical judgment that believers are to have in their relationships with one another. And that's very clear biblically. There's a way in which we are called as a family of faith, based on our profession, knowing and walking with Jesus, that we're called to hold up God's word in light of our lives. That's what we do. That's what we're doing through the book of James on Sunday morning. And that same activity, that same work is done as we live in community with one another. You probably had this happen in your life. There are people that will correct you because you're not walking in a way that aligns with the word of God. And that's right and it's good and it's healthy when it's done well. Damaging when it's not done well, but still necessary. 1 Peter 4, 17 says judgment begins at the household of God. So here's what I want to do. I want to look at Matthew 18 and Galatians 6 just really briefly to highlight the way they stand in contrast to what James is talking about in James chapter 4. So Matthew 18 and Galatians 6, 1, both prescribe believers going to one another when sin is present to confront the sin and pursue repentance and restoration. Matthew 18, 15, which is the start of a process of addressing sin that escalates. But the thing I want to highlight is the posture here. Matthew 18, 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone in private. Very different from slander. Go in private to your brother, to your sister, and talk about the issue. Go tell them they're wrong based on the standard of Scripture. And if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. So the heart, biblically, is restoration, not defamation. It's such an important distinction. So believers are called to go to one another for the purpose of restoration, not just banging each other over the head about our failures. It's to graciously, humbly challenge and confront that we might be restored, namely to align our lives with the Word of God. Sin carries the meaning of missing the mark. That's to say when we sin, we miss the mark of God's perfect standard in His character and in His Word. Jesus says, go to your brother, tell him his fault, bring attention to how his action, his choice, his words doesn't align with God's law. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. And Galatians 6.1 is such a helpful addition to this moment because it speaks so much to the 
the climate of the heart of the person who goes. And I share this in the Belong class as we talk about just the relationship of believers to one another in the body of Christ. Galatians 6.1 says this, says, Brothers, church family, Christians, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual at that moment, not just some super spiritual category, you who are spiritual in that moment should restore him. Restoration, not defamation. But look at what goes on, Paul goes on to say, restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. The motive is restoration. The posture is humility and gentleness, which stands in stark contrast to what James is seeking to unearth, that we are ones who like to take and hijack the seat of the the bench, if you can view yourself in a courtroom, to stand over others as opposed to walking alongside them to uphold the, the law of God and expose sin where it needs to be exposed. Addressing sin necessarily involves holding up our actions to the law and in that sense standing as a judge against the guilty party. In Matthew 18 and in Galatians 6.1, we see both a biblical motive and mode. So our aim is restoration, not defamation. Our posture is humility and gentleness. But if we're honest with ourselves, every single one of us is guilty of elevating ourselves other, over other people. So it would be like walking into the courtroom and hijacking the, the judge's seat in order to stand in judgment over other people. And James says plainly, there's only one. There's only one person who can do that. There's only one judge and lawgiver, namely, and, and you are not him. Like, you're not the one. So you shouldn't stand in judgment of your brother in the sense of a prideful posture of arrogance. And instead of occupying our common seat as doers of the law, we hijack that higher seat. We move to take the bench and become the judge. As I was thinking about this in my own heart, like we, like we elevate ourselves really quickly because we evaluate ourselves so poorly. Like we, it's just so much easier to see the sin in someone else's life than your own. And that's a sinful struggle. But we elevate ourselves really quickly because we evaluate ourselves so poorly. Like we're so mindful of the spots and blemishes in the lives of those around us that we don't take the time to take the log out of our own eye. There's a reason that Matthew 7 speaks in those terms. We see the speck, but we can't feel the log, right? But be humble. Because we can see other people's sin a lot clearer than our own. And when we do this, heavenly wisdom has been lost. And to go back to last week, when we posture ourselves in a place of pride, guess what we receive? It's like the, the storehouses of grace are cut off in the opposition of God, replaces his grace. Now, most of us are street smart enough to know, like, between those two options, the better for me is the grace of God and not the opposition of God. But yet, we find ourselves so often posturing ourselves over other people. But God is opposed to the proud and gives grace to the humble. 
The grace of God is shut off as our pride ushers in his opposition. But the voice of humility at the end of this section rings out in verse 12 with a simple but probing question. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Who are you to judge your neighbor? And there's a little bit of gentleness you can feel in the question like, hey, who are you? So whatever measure of judgment like you felt in your heart as we've been going through the last 20 minutes, whatever you felt, whatever challenge you felt internally and personally, this question should strike you with a shepherding, loving nudge. Like, hey, who, who are you? Who are you to judge your neighbor? As someone wrote, like both the critic and the criticized find themselves in the family of God by the same person and by the same reason, namely grace. Who are you to judge your neighbor? If you both manage to be in the family of God by faith alone, by grace alone, and Christ alone, who are you to judge your neighbor? Let me finish by just offering some, some observations and maybe implications for humility. We talked about what pride does. Let me give you a few things, even from the book of James, as it relates to humility, and we'll finish with this. Humility is cautious and careful with words. And this sounds really elementary, but we struggle here. Humility is careful and cautious with words. Be slow to speak, quick to hear, slow to anger, right? Watch your tongue. Because a tongue can destroy whole churches and organizations. We talked about that, right? So be cautious and careful with your speech. And that is a mark of humility. Humility is cautious and careful with words. Humility trusts God as a supremely better judge than we are. So leave the matters of the heart to him. Humility trusts that God is a supremely better judge than you are, than I am. So we trust him and leave matters of the heart to him. Humility moves gently toward others while looking at self with restoration as the goal. Meditate on Galatians 6. If you have trouble in this space of going to other people, addressing sin, interpersonal conflict, where that's a real struggle in your marriage or otherwise, meditate on Galatians 6.1. Because when you go, even in moments of legitimate sin that's present, you're to go with gentleness and don't forget to look at yourself lest you too fall into temptation. Humility and gentleness. All of us could use a greater dose of those things. Humility is reminded that condemnation and judgment are a common deserved sentence for all humanity. You ultimately our temptation to stand in pride over and against other people is crushed in the face of the cross of Calvary. Like the, the ground is level at the foot of the cross, many have said over the years. It's like, how could you be prideful when you stare at the cross of Jesus? Like your pride, my pride is what caused him to have to go there. The agony that he felt was because of the many effects and the consequences of our lack of humility and our burning pride against our God and against other people. 
both the critic and the criticized find salvation in the same place and in the same person. In a somewhat ironic picture, like we try to hijack the judge's seat to judge other people. We've talked about that already, right? But God willingly leaves the judge's seat and receives our death sentence for us. So even the, even the picture of God being on, the, on the, the bench and declaring that we're innocent, although we're guilty, isn't sufficient to describe what happened in the work of Jesus. Because it was as if the judge left the bench and went to, to the execution chamber for you. He didn't just declare you not guilty. In fact, the whole reason he could say that guilty people are not guilty is because someone else was treated guilty who wasn't guilty, namely Jesus. It's 2 Corinthians 5, 21. That he who knew no sin became our sin. That through faith in him, we might, we might receive and be declared righteous before God. He gets all of our sin. We get all of his righteousness. So one day, both the critic and the criticized can stand before God, clean and holy, blemish-free, beyond reproach, because of Christ alone. Remember, church family, like who are you to judge? God, the one who is worthy and one who would have been completely justified and crushing us, destroying us, has given us life instead. Let your words give life. Let your posture toward his people bring life and peace and righteousness. Don't speak evil against those who are part of your family. And don't judge as if you haven't received the grace of God through Jesus who is judged for you. Let me pray to that end. God, if we could feel um, if we could hear if we could sense even just the proximity of, of hell if there's some way in which our senses would be made alive so we could apprehend what your judgment would feel like we would crumble in a heap on this floor We know so little. We know so, so little. The magnitude of what we have been rescued from. And we need your help. We need your help to feel it. In the deepest part of who we are. We need to feel how mercy triumphs over judgment. We need to feel the weight of how much we've been forgiven. And we need to know 
how much we have offended a holy God. In the light of our offense, how wonderful it is that we can be forgiven. And we need your grace just simply to understand it. To know the height and the breadth and the depth of the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge that we might be filled with the same. To love one another that the world would know that Jesus is the Son of God because we have this peculiar love for each other. Help our church family to be void of slander. By the Spirit of God, would you, would you crush pride so that none of us would think more highly of ourselves than we ought to? Because boasting is excluded when we understand what Jesus did for us. And I pray that you would increase in us humility. And as a result, that grace would would flow and flood our hearts, our relationships, our homes, our workplaces, and our ministry here with unhindered strength as a group of people empowered by the grace of God to be who you've called us to be, to do what you've called us to do. Thank you for your wonderful grace. It makes us what we're not. It withholds from us what we actually deserve and gives us everything we don't. We need to love you more. You deserve for us to worship you more fully, more passionately and joyfully. And I pray that as a result of being together this morning, hearing this particular word, that you would incite our hearts to love you more. I pray we'd sing this last song as an offering to you because your mercy is truly more. That where our sin abounds, that the grace of God abounds all the more to rescue us. Thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's go ahead and stand together. We'll sing.